Okay, this is a, a very, very boisterous crowd this evening, but it's time to get going. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it's uh, really a great thrill to see another packed house tonight in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Um, I just want to remind you that on view for the next 10 days only until it closes on April 17th is our great exhibition, Silicon City Computer History Made in New York. Um, and I know that if you haven't already seen this exhibition, you will want to return during regular museum hours for this extraordinary story of American innovation rooted right here in New York City. And speaking of innovation, I want to congratulate our speaker this evening, distinguished Lerman Fellow at the New York Historical Society, Andrew Roberts, for his most recent accolade, which was announced just this week. Dr. Roberts is the winner of the 2016 Bradley Prize, a $250,000 prize. <laughs> wow. And the reason why I stressed innovation is because the Bradley Prize is in fact awarded annually to innovative thinkers and practitioners. So congratulations again, Andrew. Tonight's program, Leaders in War, Joseph Stalin, is a distinguished Lehrman Fellow at New York Historical Society lecture. Our great and visionary trustee and noted Lincoln and financial history scholar, Mr. Lewis E. Lehrman, is responsible for creating this series, and it is my great honor to acknowledge and thank him. We all bask in your glory, Lewis. I'm also thrilled to acknowledge and thank other trustees who are with us this evening, our outstanding chair of the Board of Trustees, Pam Schaffler, and also our chair of the executive committee and uh, chairman emeritus, Roger Hertog, as well as Jim Basker, James Basker, Michael Weisberg, and of course, Lou Lerman, I'll mention again. Thanks so very much to all of you for all that you do on behalf of this great institution. Now then, tonight's program will last about an hour and it will include a question and answer session. There will be a formal book signing following the program and copies of our speaker's books will be available for sale in our museum store. We are very pleased indeed to welcome Andrew Roberts back to the New York Historical Society. Dr. Roberts is currently visiting professor at the War Studies Department at King's College London. He's a member of many respected boards and committees. He is a director of the Harry Guggenheim Foundation in New York, and in 2012, he was awarded the William Penn Prize. In 2007, he delivered the prestigious White House Lecture. Dr. Roberts' recent book, Napoleon, A Life, was the 2014 winner of the Grand Prix of the Fondation Napoleon and 2015 winner of the Los Angeles Times Biography Prize. He's the author and editor of 12 books, including Masters and Commanders, How Four Titans Won the War in the West, 1941 to 1945, and as I said uh, just earlier, 
Hot off the press, he is also the recipient of the prestigious 2016 Bradley Foundation Prize. As always, before we begin, I'd ask that you please make sure that anything that makes noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming Andrew Roberts to the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honor to be invited to address you um, again this evening. And uh, thank you very much indeed for those um, kind words, Louise. Uh, I think the definition of a split second is the period between my daughter finding out about the Bradley Prize and her starting negotiations over her student loan. <laughs> I'd like to um, preface my remarks this evening by making a, a formal apology to Mr. Donald Trump for seeming uh, to liken him to Adolf Hitler in one of the answers to a question in my lecture on the Fuhrer back in October. I'm profoundly sorry. Uh, if people took away that impression. Um, it is, of course, Benito Mussolini, uh, <laughs> whom Mr. Trump so uncannily resembles, uh, particularly in the jawline. Uh, and I, it was very unprofessional of me to have mixed up my 20th century dictators in such a way. Today, I would like to examine Mussolini's and Hitler's murderous contemporary, the dictator from whom both men learned a good deal about techniques of control and repression. Any evaluation of Joseph Stalin as a war leader in the Great Patriotic War of 1941 to 45 needs to start long before that war broke out. For Stalin's extraordinary personal toughness had been molded in numerous prisons long before he came to power. It's thought he killed his first victim as early as 1902. In the period before 1941, Stalin had been exiled for four years to a freezing and lonely Siberia. He had lived his life um, and risked his life in the Russian underground, fighting the Tsarist Okhrana secret police, while Lenin and other Bolshevik leaders were safely plotting in Swiss libraries and cafes. He'd played a dangerous and active supporting role in the October Revolution. He'd overseen mass starvation at Tsaritsyn, uh, the city later called Stalingrad, now of course called Volgograd, uh, on the River Volga during the Russian Civil War. He'd forced through the farm collectivization program that drove millions into exile, starvation, and death. He had also organized show trials that led to the execution of hundreds of thousands of his, um, uh, sorry, hundreds of his comrades, such as Zinoviev, Bukharin, and uh, Kamenev on trumped-up treason charges. He'd instituted deliberate starvation policies to crush the Kulaks and Ukrainians. And perhaps above all, he had murdered millions in purges in which the victims' names were picked pretty much entirely at random uh, in order to terrorize the entire population. This, ladies and gentlemen, was the man who Adolf Hitler decided to take on in June 1941. That revolutions devour their own children is a truism, but in Russia, it was sometimes literally so. In his book, Stalin, The Court of the Red Tsar, my friend Simon Seabag Montefiore records occasions on which parents were forced to eat their own babies in the famines in Ukraine that the Bolsheviks had deliberately engineered in 1930 to 1932 in order to wipe out their class and ethnic enemies. In the Lyubyanka prison in Moscow, he tells us, quote, many of the prisoners were beaten so hard that their eyes literally popped out of their heads. They were routinely beaten to death, which was registered as a heart attack. 
Stalin even went so far as to pass a Politburo resolution legalizing torture. Though the Bolsheviks thought of themselves as decent, idealistic, even moralistic. Darkness at Noon, um, anyone who admires Arthur Kersler's masterpiece, Darkness at Noon, will immediately recognize this syndrome. Yet Stalin also saw himself as a poet, albeit of verses as cringe-making as, quote, the pinkish blood, sorry, the pinkish bud has opened, rushing to the pale blue violet, and stirred by a little breeze, the lily of the valley has bent over the grass. Of the 1.5 million people Stalin ordered to be arrested in 1937 alone, over 700,000 were shot. He loved to hear how his enemies died as they were taken downstairs in the Lubyanka prison in Moscow to be executed in a purpose-built bunker. To roars of laughter from his entourage, his lieutenants would act out the pleadings of his victims as they begged for their lives just prior to receiving the bullet in the back of the head from the chief executioner, Vasily Blokhin. A loathsome twist was added by the uh, Jewish secret policeman, Karl Pauker, as he profaned his race by acting out the pleadings of Zinoviev, emphasizing his Jewish accent and his probably invented cries to the God of Israel to save him. After Stalin's wife, Nadia, committed suicide after a dinner at which he had thrown bread rolls at attractive guests and flirted with them in front of her, he spent the night spitting at a wall. For some reason, both Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt believed they could somehow soften such a man, or at least, very, very least, make him behave as other statesmen did. The reason that Stalin was a monster was not because he was an ambitious, cynical, cunning, murderous, vengeful, narcissistic, imperious, self-centered, uh, paranoiac, um, though all of those adjectives can be found in the latest biography by Stephen Kotkin, but rather because he was a devout Marxist-Leninist. Nothing, writes Kotkin, not the teenage girls, the violence, the camaraderie, diverted him from his life's mission. This was class warfare. His all-purpose remedy to the ills of society was to conduct relentless warfare against the bourgeoisie. Mastery of the ideology of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, not just the apparatus, explains Stalin's long and tight grip on power. We often tend to ignore, or at least downgrade, the importance of ideology in communist regimes because the lexicon is hard to decipher, the concepts and phraseology are fundamentally boring and complex. Indeed, they can make theological controversies of 17th century England seem fascinating and straightforward uh, by comparison. And of course, it seems to bear no relation to the reality on the ground. Yet to the Bolsheviks themselves, ideology was everything. And at the heart of it was the class struggle. As Stalin put it in a speech in July 1928, it has never been seen and never will be seen that obsolete classes surrender their position voluntarily without attempting to organize resistance. The movement towards socialism must lead to resistance by the exploiting elements against this movement, and the resistance of the exploiters must lead to an inevitable sharpening of the class struggle. Nikita Khrushchev used to say that Stalin was incorruptible and irreconcilable in class questions. It was one of his greatest qualities, and he was greatly respected for it. Part of Stalin's disastrous mismanagement of pre-war Russian foreign policy, which allowed him to miss completely the build-up to Operation Barbarossa, Germany's invasion of Russia, 
lay in his total faith in Marxist-Leninism. He genuinely believed that there was little to choose between the capitalist countries, uh, Germany, Italy, America, France, and Britain, despite the bacillus of fascism having infected the first two, but not the last three. Because under Marxist-Leninist thought, capitalism inevitably leads to imperialism and thus fascism, Stalin was unable or unwilling intellectually to differentiate between the actions of Nazi Germany and the bourgeois West, leaving him wide open to be duped by the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of August 1939, which partitioned Poland and allowed Hitler a free hand in the West to crush France. Because his ideology declared wars between the capitalist powers to be endemic and something to be encouraged, he assumed that the pact would allow the Soviet Union to become what he called, quote, the laughing third man in a fight, whilst the capitalist imperialist powers destroyed each other. It was a woeful way to run a foreign policy, and within two years, it had left the USSR wide open to the largest invasion in the history of mankind. Russia was terribly unprepared for the onslaught. The fortifications in the west of the country were still in the early stages of construction, and his army was stationed far too far to the west. And on the very day that the German invasion swept eastwards, train, trains carrying oil and grain were going westwards from Russia to Germany in fulfillment of the provisions of the pact. Stalin's refusal to accept that the Germans were going to attack, despite some 80 detailed warnings from Churchill and his own spy networks, uh, his, the Russian spy Richard uh, Sorger actually gave him the correct day of the 22nd of June 1941 for the invasion, meant that 80% of the Soviet air force was wiped out in the western regions before it even had a chance to get off the ground. The Russian armed forces weren't um, even fully mobilized when Hitler attacked because Stalin did not want to be seen to be provoking him, despite the buildup over the previous months of three million Germans on Russia's borders. The genesis of this disastrous policy can be seen in Stalin's idiotically isolationist speech to the 10th Party Congress in March 1936. And bear in mind, uh, Hitler had been in power for three years uh, up until this point in which he urged the Communist Party, quote, to be cautious and not allow Soviet Russia to be drawn into conflicts by warmongers who were accustomed to have others pull the chestnuts out of the fire, i.e. the capitalist powers of the West. A year later, in 1937, he moved against the one organization that he needed most in order to defeat Germany, the Red Army, executing three of its five marshals, 15 of its 16 army commanders, and 60 of the 67 corps commanders, uh, and all 17 commissars. Um, Marshal Tukhajensky was the model of the modernizing, thoughtful military campaigner and reformer, but Stalin had him shot in 1937, along with tens of thousands of colonels and other officers he could ill afford to lose. And to make it even more self-defeating, Stalin actually knew that these veteran Bolsheviks were loyal to the, to the um, Communist Party and himself, and that the treason charges against them were entirely baseless. Some future marshals were imprisoned, tortured, but not shot, such as Konstantin Rokozovsky, who had his fingernails pulled out and several ribs uh, broken during interrogation. When Stalin reappointed him to high command in 1941, he asked him where he had been. Um, he, uh, he knew the answer perfectly well. Rokozovsky himself told his daughter that the reason that he always carried a revolver with him was so that he would never be able to be arrested again. In May 1926, the Soviet military rode on maneuvers on bicycles because they had so few tanks. In 1940, they had been effectively defeated by tiny Finland. 
With the Red Army massacres of 1937, it was small wonder that Russia was so unprepared for Hitler's invasion four years later. Right across the Russian Empire, he created abattoirs for humans, supervising everything, down to the best foliage to grow over the mass graves. If only Stalin knew what was going on was a frequent cry heard by Russians at every new atrocity, but Stalin knew precisely what was going on. It was he, or occasionally he and Molotov, who drew up the lists for torture and execution himself, often entirely at random, because it was the numbers that mattered rather than anything to do with guilt. When he was told about the German invasion shortly after dawn on the 22nd of June 1941, Stalin couldn't believe it and said that it must have been due to a conspiracy in the Wehrmacht, adding, Hitler surely doesn't know about it. Uh, he ordered his foreign minister, V.I. Molotov, to ask the German ambassador, Friedrich von Schulenberg, for clarification. Marshals Timoshenko and Zhukov, both of whom had been kept entirely in the dark about intelligence reports uh, warning of Barbarossa, implored Stalin for permission to take armed countermeasures. But even once Stalin had been informed that the German government had indeed officially declared war, he still continued to stipulate that Soviet ground forces should not infringe German territorial integrity. Uh, there wasn't much chance of that happening uh, anytime soon. As Stalin's biographer Robert Service has written, a military calamity has occurred on a scale unprecedented in the wars of the 20th century. The Germans penetrated hundreds of miles in days, captured 3.5 million prisoners in a matter of weeks, and reached the outlying Moscow subway stations within four months. Stalin was unable to focus his mind um, on the morning of the invasion. He let Molotov make the rallying address to the nation at noon that day. But visitor books and meeting agendas show that Stalin was um, hard at work consulting the high, uh, military high command later that day. And a new high command, the Stavka, was established the next day, the 23rd of June. Because of the military disasters that were taking place, Marshal Timoshenko was appointed its chairman by Stalin, who also refused the position of Supreme Commander de Jure, while of course retaining it de facto. On the 29th of June, 1941, one week into the invasion, Stalin suddenly disappeared from view and withdrew to his dacha outside Moscow, not taking calls or giving orders as the Western Front continued to collapse. Was he doing what Ivan the Terrible had once done when he withdrew to a monastery in order to underline his own indispensability? Or had he suffered a debilitating collapse in morale or even a mental breakdown as some historians have surmised? We can't know. Certainly, uh, Stalin never spoke of it. After four days, five key figures in the Politburo and the Stavka, Molotov, Malenkov, uh, Marshal Voroshilov, Mikoyan, and the NKVD chief Lavrenti Beria drove out to the dacha to find out what was going on. They found Stalin slumped in an armchair. The way that he muttered, why have you come, implied to Mikoyan that he feared that they were going to arrest him. Molotov said they needed a new state committee of defense to coordinate Russia's fight back, and a suspicious Stalin asked who would chair it, and Molotov proposed Stalin himself, which elicited the single word, good. Thereafter, Stalin operated a complex chain of command, principally comprising the Stavka, the Politburo, and the State Committee of Defense, the last of which had dual military and civilian connections and frequently changing personnel. He consigned some key individuals, such as Russia's greatest soldier of the war, Marshal um, Gorgi Zhukov, to operational and staff appointments in turn. 
His motive was to ensure that no one other than him should have an overall view of the war's progress. But he was also influenced, it's thought, by Tsarist military practice, which had a separate imperial and army staff. And of course, the Leninist principle of the party always having the leading role in every aspect of society. Stalin spoke to the nation on the 3rd of July, the first of only nine wartime speeches of any length. In this, he was much more like Hitler, who only gave one public speech during the whole of the calendar year 1944, um, rather than Churchill, who made several hundred speeches during the war, or FDR, who delivered weekly fireside chats over the radio, as well as the States of the Union speeches in Congress and press conferences in the Oval Office. Nor did Stalin write in Pravda or the other newspapers. He never allowed articles to be published that he hadn't written himself. He didn't authorize any new photographs of himself and was almost completely reclusive during the war except for October Day parades. And this helped him manage his image um, enormously well. Time magazine made him its man of the year in both 1940 and 1942. Stalin didn't take over the chairmanship of Stavka until um, the 8th of August 1941, by which time he had had the commander of the Western Front, Dmitry Pavlov, shot. Um, although this uh, time there was no show trial or torture or forced confession. Voltaire had joked at the time of the execution of Admiral Bing that the British executed their admirals pour encourager les autres, um, but with Stalin this was literally true. Stalin's son, Yakov, a lieutenant in the 14th Armoured Division, was captured near Vitebsk in July 1941, whereupon Stalin had Yakov's wife, uh, Yulia, arrested and interrogated. He refused to exchange his son for Field Marshal von Paulus, saying he would not exchange a Field Marshal for a lieutenant. And in April 1943, Yakov was shot for refusing to obey a prison guard, although there are other versions of how he died too, including that he deliberately walked into an electric fence, a case of suicide by attempted escape. Yet Stalin didn't complain about Nazi brutality. He knew that this was war to the knife, in which horrific ill-treatment of POWs would be evident on both sides, and the Geneva Convention would be completely ignored. He took relatively few strategic decisions during the war, but when he did overrule Zhukov and Timoshenko, it tended to lead to larger Russian losses. He ordered Kiev to be defended to the last man in 1941, for example. How can you even think of giving up Kiev to the enemy, he said to Zhukov at one Stavka meeting. If you think the chief of staff can't talk anything but absolute nonsense, Zhukov very bravely replied, he's got no business here. Kiev fell on the 19th of September after massive losses of life. Robert Service is right when he says that in his refusal to contemplate strategic withdrawals, Stalin acted like a military ignoramus, just as he had been proved a diplomatic one in mid-1941. Modern historians believe that Russia could have won the war with far fewer than the 27 million deaths that it was to suffer. On the 28th of uh, July, 1941, uh, Stalin signed Order No. 227, uh, entitled Not a Step Backward, which stated that any retreat without direct sanction from the Kremlin would be treated as treason and thus punishable by death. During the Battle of Stalingrad alone, some 13,500 Russian soldiers were shot by the NKVD for cowardice. Uh, almost an entire division, even though men were being sent into battle without rifles, being told to pick up those dropped by the men who had been killed beside them. Yet it's worth considering whether such a war could possibly have been won had Stalin, Zhukov, and the others not been such tough, utterly pitiless men. 
After the Battle of Stalingrad was won, not least by Marshal Rokozovsky successfully uh, encircling the besieging forces in uh, Operation Uranus in mid-November 1942, Stalin did not visit the city. Indeed, he hardly ever left the Kremlin and his dacha, except to go to the Tehran and Yalta conferences. As Marshal Biryanov recalled of the Supreme Commander, not once did his eyes behold a soldier in combat. The closest he ever got um, to this was within 40 miles of the Minsk front in 1942, although Pravda entirely untruthfully reported him making key decisions on the front line there. So he was much more like Hitler than Churchill in that regard, too. Stalin himself was not the bravest of men, recalled Mikoyan, um, at least after Stalin was safely dead. Uh, <laughs> Nikolai Voronov, commander of the Red Army Artillery between 1941 and 1950, said, I rarely saw Stalin in the first days of the war. He was depressed, nervous, and off balance. When he gave assignments, he demanded that they be completed in an unbelievably short time without considering real possibilities. In the um, uh, first weeks of the war, in my opinion, he misconceived the scale of the war and the forces and equipment that could actually stop the advancing enemy on a front stretching from sea to sea. The reality of war for him, as Robert Service uh, writes of Stalin, was his conversations with Zhukov, his inspection of maps, and the orders he shouted down the telephone line at frightened politicians and commanders. But he was the ultimate coordinator. He didn't generally interfere with military dispositions after it became, it became clear that uh, Zhukov and other senior marshals, um, such as Rokozovsky and uh, Ivan Konyev, um, knew better than the senior politicians what they were doing. He would set up debates in the Stavka between experts without letting on which side he supported, uh, which is a sensible management technique, uh, even outside a dictatorship. He certainly stimulated production impressively. In the last six months of 1942, the USSR built 15,000 aircraft and 13,000 tanks. The all-purpose Soviet T-34 tank wasn't as good as the Panzers ranged against it, it's true, but the sheer numbers produced meant that it won the Battle of Kursk in July 1943. As Stalin once said, in the end, enough quantity becomes quality. Less applicable today was Stalin's other management technique of constantly threatening to shoot people. Um, to Nikolai uh, Bybakov, who was put in charge of uh, evacuating the Caucasian oil installations, he said, Bear in mind that if you leave the Germans even one ton of oil, we'll shoot you. But if you destroy the installations prematurely and the Germans don't grab them and we're left without oil, we'll also shoot you. Uh, Babakov steered through this minefield uh, somehow and, and only died in 2008. When General Alexander Stepanov, the army commissar on the Western Front, suggested moving the staff uh, headquarters eastwards, um, from Pereshenko in October 1941, the following conversation took place. Stalin. Comrade Step uh, Stepanov, find out whether your comrades have got spades. Stepanov, what's that, Comrade Stalin? Um, Stalin, do the comrades have, uh, have um, spades? Stepanov, Comrade Stalin, what kind of spades do you mean? The type used by sappers or some other? Stalin, it doesn't matter which type. Stepanov, Comrade Stalin, they've got spades, um, but what should we do with them? Stalin, Comrade Stepanov, pass on to your comrades that they should take their spades and dig their own graves. Stavka will remain in Moscow, and you are not to move from Poroshenko. 
Yet it wasn't true that the, Stal- uh, that the Stavka was necessarily going to stay in Moscow. On the 18th of October 1941, Stalin even had his personal ma- train made ready to spirit him out of Moscow and behind the Urals. If that had happened, the collapse in Russian morale, once it became known, might well have allowed the Wehrmacht to win the war in the, uh, in the East. Somehow, however, the Russians hung on, even though Leningrad, for example, was subjected to a grueling 900-day siege by the end of which cannibalism was being routinely practiced. In 1997, the uh, Finnish-based historian Albert Axel published a book entitled Stalin Through the Eyes of His Commanders, for which he tape-recorded interviews with 30 of Stalin's surviving combat generals. No excuses were accepted for slipshod work, and penalties could be very severe, recalled one. Stalin never forgave carelessness in work or failure to finish a job properly, recalled um, Marshal Vasilevsky, even if this happened with a highly indispensable worker without a previous blemish on his record. Yet he would also look into the day-to-day problems of the army. When Marshal Maretsov told Stalin that his officers had nowhere to meet their wives and girlfriends for conjugal visits, Stalin had houses specially built for the purpose. Told that a bomb had fallen on the general staff's kitchens, Stalin ordered three sandwiches per day, per person, to be brought to them in baskets. These kind of things were remembered by the generals, who were almost uniformly positive about him, even 40 years after his death. Of course, they were hardly a statistically valid market sample, since they were the ones who'd survived. Stalin's political decisions as a war leader were important in strengthening Russian morale. He allowed an element of market economics to encourage peasants to sell vegetables to alleviate urban malnutrition. He allowed um, Anna Akhmatova's um, poems and Dmitry Shostakovich's tenth, uh, sorry, Seventh Symphony to be broadcast. He dropped the Internationale as the uh, national anthem for something more Russian and less cosmopolitan, which also contained a verse praising him. Uh, he met acting patriarch Sergei and uh, opened the Russian Orthodox churches after decades of imprisoning and killing priests. And he abolished the Comintern, while of course keeping iron control of the foreign communist parties by other means. Yet it, as soon as it was clear that Russia was going to win the war, he started to reimpose strict Marxism-Leninism. As early as 1942, uh, for example, it became illegal to praise American technology. So Frank Roberts, the British minister in Moscow between 1945 and 1947, no relation, uh, wrote that Roosevelt and Stalin were susceptible to start, sorry, Roosevelt and Churchill, um, pretty important that, um, were susceptible to Stalin because he didn't fit the dictator stereotype of the time. He was not a demagogue. He did not strut in flamboyant uniforms. He was soft-spoken, well-organized, not without humor. He knew his brief, an agreeable facade concealing unknown horrors. It was true that the marshal's uniform uh, that Stalin wore every day wasn't flamboyant, but the horrors weren't unknown to Stalin, uh, to to Roosevelt and Churchill. The massacre of some 22,000 members of the Polish officer corps in the Katyn forest in April and May 1940 grew out of Stalin's obsessive hatred of the Poles, at whose hands he had been humiliated in the Soviet-Polish War of 1920-21. Once Poland fell into Stalin's hand in 1939 as a result of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the NKVD also moved in to wipe out 
the Polish leadership and intelligentsia through incarceration and liquidation. At Katyn, the executioner-in-chief, Vasily Blokin, whose leather butcher's apron protected his uniform from the flying blood, personally shot 7,000 people in 28 days. So many that he had to wear gloves because otherwise he would get blisters on his trigger finger. He has a place in the Guinness Book of Records as the most prolific executioner in history. Once the Germans uncovered the massacre in 1943, Churchill and Roosevelt soon realized that Stalin was lying when he claimed that it had been done by the Nazis, a lie that the Russians only admitted was untrue in the year 1990. Even though Stalin had wanted to preempt Hitler's attack at... Oh, and um, uh, speaking of, um, about um, uh, Frank Roberts, um, the ambassador, British ambassador at the time, uh, I knew Frank Roberts fairly well. And he told the most magnificent story of, uh, of having dinner with Stalin and the Politburo after the war was over. And, um, and Stalin, uh, what Stalin used to do was to, he would drink vodka-colored um, wine whilst he made the rest of the Politburo drink actual vodka. And so as they got drunker and drunker, he didn't. And he, uh, and he carried on listening and, and watching. And um, there was a moment at the end of one dinner that, uh, that Frank recalled where uh, Stalin said to, uh, said to Frank, tell me, what are your pleasures? What do you enjoy? Uh, what are your, your uh, interests? And uh, Frank said, oh, well, I, I particularly love the, um, the Bolshoi Ballet. It's, uh, it's a great uh, Russian institution and it's, uh, and it's wonderful. And uh, Stalin said, yes, oh, we're very proud indeed of the, of the Bolshoi. Um, let me ask everybody else around the, uh, around the table, um, Khrushchev, what, what do you particularly uh, like? And Khrushchev, um, emboldened by what Frank had said, he said that he liked Russian opera, and uh, somebody else, Malenkov or somebody, said that they liked um, the uh, Russian um, concerts, and, uh, and others said that they loved uh, Russian choir music and singing, and they went round the table. And finally, uh, Frank said, um, what about you, uh, Comrade Stalin? What, what do you enjoy? And Stalin said, well, I was expecting you, as a, obviously a representative of the bourgeois powers, to come up with such a, a bourgeois pleasure as, uh, as opera um, and ballet. But uh, I was rather shocked that uh, the whole of the rest of my Politburo, uh, who are supposed to be representatives of the, of the uh, proletariat, should also enjoy such bourgeois pleasures uh, and, uh, and, and effectively show quite how bourgeois they actually are. Um, and, uh, and Frank said, oh, and he said, he looked around the table and he could see the blood draining from the faces of uh, men like Berrier and, uh, and Malenkov, who had seen, and McCoyan, who had seen that they had fallen into a classic Stalin trap. And he said, um, he said, uh, what, um, what about you, Marshal Stalin? What do you, uh, what do you enjoy uh, most? And he said, oh, I enjoy laying a trap for my enemies and then going to bed. <laughs> Um, you wouldn't have slept that night if you were in the Politburo. Even though Stalin had wanted to preempt Hitler's attack at Kursk in July 1943, he allowed himself to be outvoted by Zhukov, Vasilevsky, and Antonov at the Stavka, correctly as it turned out. He released Zhukov to be battlefield commander at Kursk, while nevertheless having the homes of Zhukov, Voroshilov, and Budyeni bugged by the NKVD. He also seriously considered having the second best Russian general of the war, Ivan Konyev, shot in the early part of it, encouraged 
intense rivalry between generals. And as soon as the war was over, he humiliated even the greatest of his marshals, as when he sent Zhukov into internal exile by giving him the lowly command of the military district of Odessa. Stalin used the smokescreen provided by the war to commit six major acts of racial genocide against the Poles, Balts, Moldavians, and Bessarabians in 1943, sorry, 1939 to 41, and 1944 to 45, the Volga Germans in 1941, the Crimean Tatars in 1943, the Chechens in 1944, and the Ingush. In 1940, also in 1944. Just as this hadn't um, started with the war, millions of Ukrainians had died in the artificial induced famines, as I mentioned earlier, it didn't end with it either. He was planning a pogrom against Russian Jews, insinuating that there was a so called doctor's plot when he fortuitously died in March 1953. As Professor Alan Bullock so comprehensively proved in his book, Hitler and Stalin Parallel Lives, Hitler's Nazis actually learned most of their repression techniques from Stalin's Bolsheviks. On the 18th of March, 1942, President Roosevelt wrote to the British Prime Minister, Dear Winston, I know that you will not mind my being brutally frank with you when I tell you that I think that I can personally handle Stalin better than either your foreign office or my State Department. Stalin hates the guts of all your top people. He thinks he likes me better, and I hope he will continue to do so. Proud of his ability to charm anybody, Roosevelt hoped to win Stalin over to his vision of a post-war partnership. Uh, Just over 300 letters were sent between them, the first from Roosevelt soon after Hitler had invaded the Soviet Union, and the 304th was also sent by Stalin the day before, uh, by Roosevelt, I'm sorry, the day before he died in April 1945. Quote, when they are discussing American aid to the Soviet Union, writes the historian Richard Avery, they could be the managers of two large retail companies. Uh, Stalin's prose was utilitarian, his letters much briefer than Roosevelt's, occasionally mendacious, but most of the time simply economical with the truth. Roosevelt wanted to give Russia massive economic and uh, military help through Lend-Lease. He wanted to create a lasting peace based on the four great powers, uh, Russia, USA, Britain and China. He hoped to create a close personal rapport with Stalin, even at the cost of his friendship with Churchill. Meanwhile, Stalin wanted um, the Lend-Lease aid as a gift. He wanted a second front as soon as possible and an equal say in the post-war world with America and Britain, though he wasn't interested in in promoting China uh, in 1945. He also wanted Eastern Europe, especially when it became clear that there wouldn't be a Soviet-occupied zone in Italy. From the start of the correspondence, FDR wanted to meet Stalin, possibly in Iceland and preferably without Churchill being present. Instead, they first met at Tehran and Churchill was present, although FDR and Stalin made jokes at Churchill's expense and in front of him. Some historians see the Tehran conference as the first moment that the USSR became a major player in global rather than merely regional affairs, which must be properly accredited to Stalin. Yet Stalin's letters abound with his utter distrust of Roosevelt and the Americans. In 1944 and 1945, for example, he alleged that the US Army was deliberately allowing the Germans to transfer troops against the Red Army. He insinuated that the Americans had given the Russians false intelligence on German plans. He showed fury at any opposition to turn Poland into a satellite state. On the 27th of December 1944, he wrote to Roosevelt to complain that the Western Allies were effectively supporting Polish Democrats, whom he characterized as a criminal terrorist network against Soviet officers and soldiers on the territory of Poland. We cannot reconcile with such a situation when terrorists instigated by Polish emigrants 
uh, kill in Poland soldiers and officers of the Red Army leading a criminal fight against Soviet troops who are liberating Poland and directly aid our enemies, whose allies they in fact are. To describe Polish Democrats as the allies of the Nazis shows Stalin's mentality at that time, only two months before Yalta. Similarly, Stalin never really acknowledged the vital help given to his armies by the RAF and the USAAF combined bomber offensive. As you are aware, Roosevelt wrote to Stalin in 1943, we are already containing far more than half of the German air force in Western Europe and the Mediterranean. Stalin was indeed aware, but he was profoundly ungrateful. Indeed, like Charles de Gaulle, he employed uh, ingratitude as a weapon, believing, as he put it, that gratitude is a dog's disease. Leninism taught him that if the capitalists accommodated the Soviet Union in anything, it was solely because it was in their capitalist interests, such as the mollifying of their domestic workers' militancy or opening up new markets. So nothing ever needed uh, to be given them in return. The constant niet used by Maxim Litvinov, Molotov, and later Andrei Gromyko was thus an ideological as much as a diplomatic statement. As soon as any ambassadors seemed to be showing gratitude to Western powers, such as Ivan Meisky in London, they were recalled. As both Churchill and Roosevelt hailed from their country's aristocracy, the class Stalin wanted to liquidate en masse and represented the bourgeois politically, bourgeoisie uh, politically, Stalin was bound to see them as class enemies uh, since he saw everything through the prism of class warfare. Stalin told Marshal Tito that the only difference between Churchill and Roosevelt was that whereas Churchill would put his hand in your pocket to steal a kopeck, uh, that is one hundredth of a ruble, Stalin, uh, sorry, Roosevelt only bothered pickpocketing you for the much larger coins. In fact, of course, it was Stalin who had his hands deep into Western pockets, whether it was for the 5,000 aircraft or the 7,000 tanks or the 50 million pairs of boots that America provided for free on top of millions of tons of aluminium and grain. There is a great irony pointed out by my friend Anthony Beaver, although it's rarely acknowledged by Russian historians, that had it not been for the tens of thousands of Studebaker and Dodge trucks that FDR gave Stalin with no strings attached, the Red Army could not have reached Berlin before the Americans in 1945. Yet Churchill and Roosevelt and their successors, Harry Truman and Clement Attlee, uh, suffered from a profound sense of blood guilt vis-a-vis -vis the Soviets. Whereas Britain had lost 388,000 and America 295,000 uh, killed in the war, the Russians lost a staggering 27 million, nearly 40 times as many as Britain and America put together. Although, as we have seen, very often it had been Stalin's own strategy that had led to this huge number of deaths, and many modern historians believe that without his refusal ever to give up cities without fighting to the last man, the USSR could have won the war with far fewer fatalities. Stephen Kotkin is rightly at pains to point out that it was ideology rather than psychology, especially the kind of cod psychology so often applied to Stalin, that best explain his actions. He probably wasn't even beaten by his drunken cobbler father in Gori. And the same seminary which uh, is meant to have radicalized him also turned out soft Mensheviks uh, from the same class. No, it was his struggle as a Bolshevik and Lenin loyalist in the life or death struggles before, during, and after the October Revolution of 1917 that molded him. Stalin's marked personal traits, writes Kotkin, which colored his momentous political decisions, emerged as a result of politics. His undoubted paranoia, 
closely mirrored the Bolshevik revolution's inbuilt structural paranoia, the predicament of a communist regime in an overwhelmingly capitalist world, unquote. He had once, uh, Stalin had once asked a victim about to be executed in 1937, can you explain your conduct by the fact that you have lost your faith? For Marxism-Leninism was a faith for him, one that was far more powerful than the Christian one that he had been taught in his seminary. Somehow, Stalin believed simultaneously that the capitalist imperialism, uh, sorry, that capitalist imperialism was both in its death throes and that it also posed a mortal danger to the USSR. Indeed, Leninism stated that the closer to death that capitalism got, the more rather than less dangerous it would become. And Stalin imbibed all that tripe and believed it implicitly. His last book was um, about his belief that it was the historic destiny of Marxism-Leninism to establish a utopian society peopled by what he called the new socialist man, who seems uncannily actually like um, Adolf Hitler's Ubermensch Aryan Superman, uh, by the way. It was for the Marxist, that Marxist-Leninist faith that 27 million Russians had to die in the Great Patriotic War, on top of the untold millions, um, both before and after that war. If Stalin had not been dictator of Russia in the 1930s, the war might not have broken out at all, because Hitler would have been fearful of a devastating war on two fronts from the very beginning of his Reich. Instead, ladies and gentlemen, Stalinism, which is not a perversion of communism, but the logical, final, and most highly developed stage of it, gave Hitler his chance. Thank you very much indeed. <clears throat> Uh, so, questions. Uh, you come up to one of these two um, microphones, uh, please. Your, your last sentence used the word Stalinism, and I was intrigued. I had always understood it to be the state repression as the extension of of Marxism and Leninism, but from listening to you, I wonder whether or not it is just merely the, the undying faithfulness to the class warfare. So what is the definition of Stalinism? Um, well, with regard to the violence of uh, Stalinism, that was already inherent in Marxism-Leninism. Uh, Lenin himself, of course, as a revolutionary, uh, was unbelievably ruthless and uh, vicious. Uh, he uh, was responsible for the, uh, for the death of, deaths of hundreds of thousands. And so um, it's important to, um, to see Stalinism as something that, grow, that grew out of um, Marxism-Leninism. But uh, as you say, it was um, just as aggressive with regard to class consciousness as being the central, um, uh, the central thrust of history and therefore the central thrust of uh, society and this new society that he, that he wanted to create. Where it slightly um, takes on uh, an extra um, dimension from Marxism-Leninism is in this concept of the, um, of the new socialist man, that somehow uh, human nature itself can be altered. I mean, obviously Marx believed that as well, that after, uh, after a time of the dictatorship of the proletariat, you would have a different kind of person. But Stalin believed that this could be done in one generation as opposed to in the, uh, in the ongoing um, um, years of history. And, uh, and that's where the, uh, where the inherent uh, sort of 
radicalization of Marxism-Leninism lies. So, Professor Roberts, thank you for a wonderful lecture. I, I'm fascinated by the idea that both both um, uh, Churchill and Roosevelt were believed that they could control um, uh, Stalin. And you said because he didn't look like a demagogue, they sort of believed that. What are the characteristics that he have that could lead them to believe they could he, he could be easily controlled by them? Well, what Frank Roberts was trying to say, I think, was that um, uh, he didn't have the flamboyance. He didn't um, dress up like uh, like uh, Mussolini and Goering, and uh, and he didn't um, make the kind of speeches that Hitler made. And that therefore he he was more uh, in a term that they would understand perhaps um, clubbable than uh, than the other dictators. Um, but uh, but actually, of course, they were um, completely wrong. This 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 was uh, psychologically, to all intents and purposes, an entirely different kind of human being than than even Churchill, who had uh, who had dealt with um, uh, with all sorts of um, uh, dictators in his time. Had come across. What they um, were also hoping for, of course, was that uh, the Soviet Union was going to behave rationally in the Soviet Union's own national interests after the war. And therefore, with regard to some things like that, that they did. The Soviet Union declared war against, um, against Japan, admittedly only a few days before the, uh, the um, uh, end of the war, but nobody knew that Japan was going to surrender when it did. Um, the Soviet Union came into the United Nations in the way that, uh, that um, Roosevelt and Churchill wanted them to. But there was a, a slight further dimension, which was that when Churchill came back from Yalta, for example, um, he, and this was also true of Roosevelt, he truly believed that there was a good chance that Poland was going to become a, um, a country that was both independent and had its own integrity. And that simply was never going to happen with six million um, Russian soldiers on Polish soil at the end of the Second World War. And so there what seems to have been an element of not only self-deceiving, um, um, but also deceiving, also in a way enabling the self-deceit of each other. Um, Roosevelt and Churchill did um, come away uh, with, um, there was nothing they could have done, I hasten to add. There were no other choices. Right. If you have six, six million Russian troops on Polish soil, you're not about to get an independent uh, Poland. But they shouldn't have really conned themselves into thinking that that was at all a possible, um, possible outcome. Thank you. Fair. In your opinion, was Walter Duranty and others of his ilk duped by Stalin, or were they deliberate apologists for evil? And if so, why? Um, I think that it's been pretty much well established now that Duranty himself uh, was indeed evil because he knew the truth and wrote something completely opposite uh, to that. He, uh, this is about the Ukrainian famine, about the um, way in which the, uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize winner, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist went out to Ukraine and put his own um, personal political views, in this case in favor of the, um, of the Bolsheviks, before the evidence of his own eyes, uh, which has to be the definition of, um, of, uh, of a fraud. But, uh, and I think, I mean, I, am I right in saying that he was stripped of his Pulitzer Prize at some stage? He was, yes. Um, and, and well done them. But um, it wasn't just them. You know, you had uh, the Sidney and Beatrice Webb went out there. H.G. Wells went out there. Uh, George Bernard Shaw went out there. They met Stalin. Uh, they, they um, you know, looked into his eyes and thought that he was a reasonable 
uh, statesman and somebody that they could do business with. Uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's shocking today when one knows what Robert Conquest and, uh, and other brave souls told us in the Great Terror and these, these, uh, these great books. Um, but, uh, but at the time, people were willing to be, in Lenin's great phrase, useful idiots. Sir. Yes, uh, some historians said uh, Stalin was like Genghis Khan with a telephone. Did he get the idea of terror from the Mongolian conquest of Russia? And why did he become such a sociopath and the army not overthrowing him? Um, well, the army didn't overthrow him because he was, um, uh, because they were all terrified of him. They, 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 they believed that there was, there had to be a plot um, against Stalin because so many generals were being arrested for it. And so the one thing they couldn't do is sit around a table and say, let's plot against Stalin um, because the, uh, the outcome would be inevitable. So, it, so in that sense, terror really worked. Um, there were no plots against, uh, against Stalin. In fact, the great moment that they had was when they turned up to... Um, uh, on that day when I, uh, that I mentioned on the 29th of July, 1941. Had they arrested him then, um, then, uh, then everything would have been quite different. But what, I'm try what I was trying to argue, uh, sir, in the article, in the, in the speech, was not that he was a um, sociopath, or at least, of course, he was a sociopath, but not that sociopathic um, uh, elements of his character were the key deciding factors of what he did. They were not. Politics was. Thank you. Very riveting. Um, I, I was very struck, actually, you didn't mention uh, Trotsky at all during your talk. But, um, just a question from some university well, days. Well, he was dead by the time the war broke out. That's indeed, indeed, yes, reason, yeah. Yeah. Um, but just a question from some university days. Um, was, was Stalin necessary? Was that sort of existential question that was posed in the 1970s to get, Russia, to get the civilian from 1923 to 1956, 53? Yes. Um, no, he wasn't. Uh, he wasn't necessary. There were... Um, I, neither was Marxism, Leninism, or Bolshevism necessary. The, uh, the things that it did, if, if anything, held back Russia. Uh, the, in the late Tsarist period, there were huge advancements, um, advances, uh, technological and, uh, and innovative advances in both agriculture and, uh, um, and uh, industry, which needed huge uh, amounts of capital spent on them. Um, but that, that was never going to happen if you uh, murder the capitalists. And so um, as a result, what you see is, yes, you have the electrification of the, of the railways and, uh, and, uh, and everything, but at the heart of it, the concept of collectivization, especially agricultural collectivization, held Russia back terribly. And um, yes, the, uh, the, the terrified population was able to win at huge cost the Second World War. Um, but we are not to know how well they'd have done if they'd been um, led by a, a Democrat or a liberal or, uh, or somebody who wasn't uh, going to um, uh, make these, these uh, extraordinary strategic decisions. And again and again, you have to come back to the difference, the, the, the great difference between um, the kind of war that Hitler was fighting and the kind of war that, uh, that um, Churchill and Roosevelt were fighting, listening to their leaders, their, their military leaders, and uh, coming up with strategy as a result of logical and rational thought. Um, and Stalin starting off uh, with the Hitlerian form of, uh, of um, uh, control and then allowing more and more his generals to, um, to take decisions. And that is why you see the classic example being, as I mentioned, the uh, Battle of uh, Kursk, the biggest tank battle in human history. Um, 
you can see why, um, why Zhukov was able to win that, because he was given his, his head by Stalin. Sir? In, in your opinion, if Stalin had been born in the United States and grew up as an American, would he have risen to a position of leadership in this country? And if so, what type of leader would he have been? <laughs> Uh, um, as I mentioned in the speech, uh, he, he killed his first um, person in 1902. He was a bank robber, uh, he was an extortionist, he was a kidnapper, uh, and he was um, somebody who fought against the Russian uh, secret police, was, uh, spent a lot of time in hiding, a lot of time in prison, and um, was a... Uh, was, I think somebody who would have found it very difficult to have uh, got too far in the American democratic process. <laughs> Although, actually, in the last couple of weeks, one does slightly <laughs> well. So, so what you're saying, it's more culture than personality or personality as opposed to culture? Um, well, of course, they overlap uh, hugely. And, but I would, I would ultimately say no. I would say ide ideology. I want to come back to this concept of it was the political ideology that, uh, that drove him. You don't go to Siberia and spend four years in that kind of appalling, uh, uh, freezing environment where there were only 67 people lived in the village in which he spent his entire for, uh, period of the First World War sort of fishing um, out of these freezing cold uh, streams. You don't do that unless you truly believe in something. And he truly believed in, uh, in class warfare and, uh, and doing anything necessary to ensure the victory of the dictatorship of the proletariat. So. Recognizing the uh, overwhelming um, effect of uh, Russian manpower on the ground at the end of the war, there was still a perception that I had that there was a discretionary um, political um, argument that was going on between Churchill and Roosevelt about how the post-World -war, War II should look. And maybe it's revisionist uh, British history that uh, Churchill had a much more um, uh, realistic view of what the post-war was going to be and that Roosevelt was essentially duped at uh, Yalta. My question to you is, now that Roosevelt's, uh, since Roosevelt's medical records have been revealed, he was significantly impaired at Yalta. He was in heart failure, he had kidney failure. To what extent do you think that his capabilities, his mental capabilities affected the outcome of, the, um, of World War II and the Cold War? the beginning of the Cold War. Um, yes, well, it is clear that he was, uh, he was impaired, certainly, and, um, and Churchill knew that at the time, uh, and so did Stalin. You know, it didn't take a genius to work out this man was dying. Everybody said it. Um, um, there's virtually no set of diaries of anybody, or, or correspondence of letters, of anybody on the western side of, um, of um, the negotiating table at Yalta who does not mention um, the fact that the president looks terrible. And, uh, and, and many of them say that he's going to uh, you know, not, not outlast the war. Um, now, obviously, uh, knowing that himself, um, President Roosevelt should have stepped down. Um, he, uh, but uh, 
you know, presidents very rarely do. And he felt that, uh, he also thought that, understandably, that um, Truman was an untested uh, uh, figure who um, hadn't even been brought into all of the uh, most important councils. He didn't uh, learn about the nuclear um, project until very late on. So uh, he did feel that it was incumbent on him to, to try to pull off this, uh, this last great, uh, great um, uh, meeting. And it was only the second meeting that he'd had with Stalin anyhow, of course, after Tehran. And Tehran had been um, back in November 1943. So, uh, he did come away. I think you're right. It is revisionist um, to uh, not so much revisionist. Revisionist sounds like it's a it's a dirty word. Uh, I would say it's um, it's now the concept that Churchill wasn't duped, but that FDR was, um, is under huge uh, pressure. I've myself come across um, uh, papers in the Churchill archives of um, the verbatim reports of the war, of the War Cabinet on the day that he came back to report on Yalta to the war cabinet. And he was um, duped just as much as anybody else. He, he, he told the war cabinet uh, that he believed that Poland was going to have its integrity and its independence back. Um, but as I come back to saying again and again, I don't think that if it had been President Truman at Yalta, he could have done anything else about Poland. Um, because you simply have got this, this uh, immovable, massive force on the ground. And it's not a force, of course, that people see as an enemy. He is Uncle Joe. He has 27 million of his people have died, you know, fighting the, the Germans. Um, and, uh, and Germany is still fighting on at the time of Yalta in, uh, in February 1945. And so the idea that we could imp have imposed any actual sort of um, aggressive... Um, uh, stance against the uh, the, the oncoming um, uh, heroic Red Army um, is uh, political pie in the sky. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. If I have been if I have been um, sort of constantly grinning about um, uh, about th uh, these terrible things that I've been uh, speaking about today, I assure you it has nothing to do with Stalin and everything to do with the Bradley Prize. <laughs> Thank you very much. Indeed. <laughs> Andrew Roberts, thank you so much for another great talk. There will be lots more to come next year, so keep in touch. And um, we just want to remind you that we have Andrew Roberts' books in our museum store if you'd like to purchase them. We also always want to thank all of you for attending our programs. You are um, the heart of the museum here. And thank you all so much for coming. Good evening. <laughs>